Welcome back, rich girls and boys, to The Money with Katie Show. Today's episode is one of those topics that's almost guaranteed to get me tarred and feathered in my own comment section, but I can't shy away from controversial topics just because I am admittedly too sensitive for the internet, right? And uh, as with most things, the idea for this episode started with a DM. It read, the housing market is going to eventually rise faster than the stock market. And it was presented as fact in this message, and it took me kind of aback. And my take on that is that, frankly, there's no way. And as a human being that requires shelter to survive, we shouldn't want it to. We don't want the roof over our heads to become even more financialized as an asset class in this reporter's opinion. Now, the last few years have seen homeowner jubilee summit new heights, and as an outspoken renter who believes that homeownership can be a suburban middle-class scam if it's done incorrectly, it's been an especially irritating bull run. Now, I know this may come off as anti-ownership, but that's really not where I'm coming from because, frankly, I don't think what's happening in the housing market right now is good for anybody, whether you rent or you own. I think we are heading in a dangerous direction, and today I will tell you why. But there are three major reasons why I don't think the crazy returns that we've been seeing will last And the first is the way that both asset classes, property and securities, derive their value. The second is the fact that one is a human need and the other is not, and therefore the market for that one is more susceptible to your average American's income and financial stability than the other. So we'll dig into that too. And the third reason, simply put, higher interest rates. Investors, who are largely the group driving up the prices, 20% of all purchases in 2021 were to investors, not normal homeowners, have to pay a higher rate in most cases than owner-occupants. And I think if investors are facing a 6% interest rate on their loans, the returns will look less attractive as an investment opportunity and things will cool off a little bit. P.S. Can we talk about me using the phrase derive value? I should go put on a Patagonia vest. Anyway, I'm especially excited for my guest today, Brandon, also known as the Mad Scientist, and he came to join me to chew on some of this stuff and kind of give his perspective, and you'll hear from him in a little bit. But first, I just want to say, I get it. Sometimes you see that bull breathing fire out of its nostrils, stomping its front hoof, primed to charge, and then bam, it's off and running and nothing seems like it can stop it. And your intuition says, don't miss this, don't miss this. But sometimes, my friends, it is best to just wave the red cape and get the hell out of the way. More on that after the break. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
Welcome back. And as promised, here is my first stab at the heart of the bullish housing argument. The fact is, houses, when used as a primary residence or dwelling, don't create profits. If you're purchasing a home with the express purpose of renting it out to create profits, that is obviously a different story because now there are underlying cash flows in the mix. But your typical primary residence that is used as shelter for the purchaser is not profit generating in the same way as a rental property or a stock. By the way, I had breakfast uh, the other day with the CEO of Bigger Pockets, and I learned that he is a renter despite owning 15 rental properties. And the owner of Bigger Pockets has the opposite situation where he does not own any investment real estate, but he does own the house he lives in, which was really ironic and unexpected for me since Bigger Pockets is kind of the preeminent real estate podcast and brand. But anyway, switching gears. Think about why a stock has value or doesn't. Let's use Apple, for example. Apple makes a slight iteration to iPhone 174. You got 12 cameras now. Bitches go crazy, buying spree, upgrading the iPhone 173s, and Apple's share price goes up because profits. The TLDR is that Apple makes products that create real profits, and then they pass those profits on to their shareholders. There are underlying cash flows, and as a result, the stock price goes up. Now, you could argue that there's also a fair amount of investor sentiment that drives these moves too, but that doesn't last forever. Eventually, real value boils down to real asset growth. But what about your quaint eight-bedroom home? Is it making iPhones? Is it innovating electric cars? Is it making teenagers addicted to scrolling and online shopping? No, it's just sitting there sheltering you, providing a ton of value to you as shelter, but it's not generating millions of dollars in new profits by adding net new value to the economy. Now, remember, it does have an inherent, inarguable value. After all, you are a human being and you need somewhere to live, but that home has more value to you than anyone else on the planet because you are the one benefiting from its roof over your head. The bottom line is that houses don't create profit or generate new value. They get their value from what you, the human, are willing and able, that's the key, able to pay to live in it. If you're renting out the home for profit, that is obviously a different story, but it bears repeating. We're talking about the market for the primary residence, which is becoming increasingly frustratingly entangled with the investor real estate market, a point that we will circle back to in a little bit. This is where sentiment can also come into play and fuck shit up. Because when you've got a whole bunch of apartment-bound young people who just spent the last 24 months inside not spending money, you've unleashed new demand on the market kind of seemingly all at once, and it felt that way, right? You couple that with low supply from underbuilding, and it's the perfect storm. A sentiment, a narrative of scarcity helps drive housing prices up along with cheap lending. You'd see stories from CNBC and CNN and the New York Times about how homes are selling for $50,000, $75,000, $100,000 over asking, all cash. And you have now reinforced the narrative that you better come ready to play if you want to buy a house. 
waive the inspection, buy it sight unseen, throw all contingencies out the window, give the current owner your more annoying child, do whatever you have to do to get that ramshackle hut next to Denny's because it has potential and it's only going to go up in value. That is honestly how Zillow listings sound these days. But that home is only valuable insofar as someone else is willing to fork over the money to buy it. It would not be as valuable if nobody wanted to live in it, whereas Apple would still continue creating real profit regardless of whether or not people want to buy the stock. It's also highly dependent upon other people being flush with cash or the ability to obtain a lot of money via low interest rate lending, meaning less money printing or higher interest rates directly impact the price of homes. But again, more on that later. To me, it's a little bit akin to the whole location, location, location sentiment. I think that captures it perfectly. If you build a gorgeous home 10 feet from a major expressway surrounded by nothing but cornfields and 18-wheelers, that home is going to be less valuable monetarily than if you built the exact same one on a beautiful lot in a great part of town. Economic circumstances aside, a home's monetary value is directly tied to its perception of desirability to a pool of qualified buyers. And that desirability can wax and wane with sentiment. You are more vulnerable to changing factors that are outside of your control with that home's value, whether that comes from changes to a location, like a major company leaves the city or comes to the city, and even, this is a climate change alarmist trigger warning, <laughs> landscape changes over time because of global warming and its consequences. Phoenix, for example, insanely overpriced market, but some climate experts say that it'll be completely unlivable by 2050 because it's getting too hot there, literally and figuratively. Policy changes can also impact the value of a home. Someone else building 100 more homes right next to yours lowers the value of yours, which is why NIMBYs, or not in my backyards, don't want more housing supply. People will literally go to city council and object new builds because new builds lowers the value of their property if new supply is created. This happens all the time in the stock market. One company steals another company's market share. But if you own both of those companies in your handy-dandy index fund, you still benefit from that natural competition. But unless you also own all the homes going up around you, your effective competition for new buyers, the value of your home in some ways is a little bit out of your control. So that becomes a problem for a housing market that doesn't really impact the stock market in the same way because, let's shift to discussion number two here, housing is a human need and equities are not. The national housing market's prices can only continue to rise if we'll call them quote-unquote regular people, are willing and able to pay more for a house. And as more people get priced out, your pool of buyers shrinks and demand lessens. You can buy and sell equities in $100 increments. You can't buy $100 worth of a house. So your ability to participate in the housing market relies on you either having a shit ton of cash already, in a lot of cases it's cash that people have from homes they already own, or being able to borrow a lot of cash. And both of those things create friction in access. And as we've seen recently, wage stagnation means that the middle class is actively getting poorer per the Economic Policy Institute. So if 90% of Americans are seeing real wage growth that is effectively flat, there simply won't be enough people who can afford the homes to support the growth of the market as it exists today. Now, 
You could always ask whether or not that matters. I think it's possible that ownership will just become more and more concentrated in the upper class, and we may see a nation of renters emerge as it becomes the only financially tenable option. But even then, it stands to reason that as the pool of potential buyers shrinks from eligibility, demand will lessen and prices will lower. In other words, it might be that houses remain expensive, but eventually the scales will tip in the direction of there being too many homes for the amount of eligible buyers if you assume that the middle class's wages will continue on their current trajectory shrinking and housing prices will continue on their current trajectory rising, therefore widening the gap, which should cause downward pressure on prices. And for those of you uh, champing at the bit to point me in the direction of Canada's housing market bubble status, I would point you to this Jacobin article, I'll link it in the show notes, that highlights why that market is kind of past the point of reasonable appreciation status and now in that realm of investor interference has divorced prices from reality. This is the quote, as recently as 10 years ago, property speculators were a minority amongst Ontario's home buyers. Investors now surpass first-time home buyers as well as the total number of people moving between homes. According to a recent report between January and August of last year, investors were responsible for a quarter of house purchases in the province. These speculative investments are, of course, driving up prices. They are also creating major problems for the economy as a whole because the rising cost of housing has increased the amount of private debt held by individuals. Whilst interest rates have remained low, this debt has been sustainable. The possibility of hikes now threatens to bring Canada's housing market crashing down. In short, people are stretching themselves thin as fuck to afford the houses. One job loss and they are on the streets. They have that little wiggle room. And that investor interference story that we see playing out in Canada, 1.3 million homes are sitting empty in Canada, built or purchased based on investor speculation of appreciation alone. Meanwhile, Canada's homeless population is growing, displaced from homes that they can no longer afford. Do you want to say it with me? It is unsustainable. It cannot go on forever without seriously dismantling the economy. So for those of us bullishly predicting or even hoping that the U.S. housing market will do what Canada's did, I would implore you, we should not want that. The Canadian economy is skating on thin ice as more and more of its citizens face housing insecurity to the benefit of a very, very small ultra upper class and investor class. And eventually, situations like this cause cracks in that picturesque pond that you thought looked stable enough. And then... Now that you've had some time to dry off, we are ready to make another splash. So just going to come right out and say it. I'm sure I will catch some heat for this, but oh, I'm wincing. One could make the case that rental property investing is a teensy-weensy little bit predatory. And I say this as someone who still would consider doing it. So I'm not even trying to make this an ethical conversation or like past judgment. We all know that I would for sure be house hacking right now if it was affordable in my area. But when you consider the economics of what's happening, it gets a little bit dicey when you scale it up. Renting has a time and place, obviously, but 
It's hard to deny that the more individual houses that one individual person takes off the market by buying a bunch of single-family homes with the intent to rent them to someone else, it drives prices up and it makes home ownership harder for everyone else. In some ways, housing is a zero-sum game. The Washington Post recently published data, I'll put it in the show notes, that showed in the U.S. nearly 20% of the homes purchased in 2021 were purchased by investors. That's up 80% from 2020. Here's a quote. A contributing factor to the lack of homes for sale and the rising prices is the increased appetite among investors for houses. Rather than buy and flip the properties to new buyers, more investors today are keeping the homes for rental income, according to Redfin. Rental demand has been rising in recent years among would-be buyers who cannot find a place to live or cannot afford homes in their preferred location. Again, I'm admitting right now that I am interested in rental property investing. I think it's a great way to build wealth. But at the same time, I think we have to face the reality of what happens when rental property investing occurs at scale. It puts people with less money at a stronger disadvantage. Now, there is a flip side to this that I think is worth acknowledging. I know people who made very lower middle class wages, who saved and saved and sacrificed to get a small down payment so that they could house hack, and they became wealthier through real estate investing. It brought people up. So it's tough because there are two sides of this playing out, and ultimately, capitalism is a pretty powerful force. So if there's money to be made somewhere, people are going to recognize the opportunity and then jump on it. But for a moment, suspend your disbelief with me. Let's compare this to a hypothetical reality in which every person is only allowed to own one home. Now your zero-sum game has a more level playing field because we're no longer monetizing the human need or profiting from the human need for shelter as an asset class. One could make the case that it would be more beneficial for society as a whole for things like rental property investing, wherein individuals and institutions gobble up as many properties as possible, taking them off the market and then making it harder for individual buyers to own their own houses to go away. Now, I invest in Fundrise, which is an institution that buys home and rents them out. I am fully guilty of the behavior that I'm calling into question right now because I think it's still a conversation that we need to be having. The reality is that people that need rental property investing in order to afford their lives may not need it if it didn't exist at all. That's the irony. Home prices would be more realistic to regular median incomes without it, potentially. I wanted to welcome Brandon, the genius behind the blog and podcast, Mad Scientist, to the show to talk about this. Not because he's ever published any crazy, serious hot takes on real estate, but because the way he thinks about complex problems is so fascinating to me. He is like the OG tax hacker in the FI world, which makes him some version of my personal hero. So Brandon, welcome to the Money with Katie show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I'm really excited to chat with you. For those who may be unfamiliar, can you share with us when you retired, how old you were, like where you lived, where you live now? Just give us the down low. Yeah, sure. It was uh, 2016, uh, August 1st, I remember. <laughs> it's a very significant day. And uh, at the time I was living in Vermont, I was 34 years old. 34 years old. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, you are goals and a half, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's been wild. I was actually just talking to my wife about that at brunch today. She's like, I was convinced you were going to be bored or you're going to hate it or something. But we were just saying like how lucky we were to be having brunch on a Wednesday and on a sunny day in Scotland for once. So yeah, it's it's crazy. 
That's amazing. So just again, for kind of context, what has your personal experience with real estate been? Obviously, this episode is kind of about the housing market and the stock market and the relationship between the two and kind of the situation we're in right now in the U.S. So are you a real estate investor? Do you own a home? Can you give us the contextual background for your real estate experience? Sure. I I own absolutely no real estate at the moment, but I have in the past. So when I graduated from university back in 20, 2004, I was excited to be an actual adult. And I thought owning a house was the way to be a proper adult. And so I moved over to Scotland because my girlfriend at the time, but now wife, she's Scottish. And we're like, all right, let's buy our first house. So we didn't have that much money saved up. So we got a 95% mortgage and then borrowed pretty much the rest of it from her parents. And we bought our little starter house and we ended up living there for two and a half years. And we we did it up the entire time we were living there. So I guess now people would call that a live-in flip, but we were just making a not so nice house nicer for us. And then we decided in 2007, we wanted to move back to the States. So we sold it and we sold it for 50% more than we bought it for two and a half years. <laughs> I was just going to say, what a great time to be moving to the US and buying a home in 2007. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. It was the scariest thing that's I, I, I've never been more stressed. So we were selling the house. We got the perfect offer. Like we couldn't have got any higher, I don't think. And the week we were meant to close, there was a bank run on Northern Rock because um, that was the start of the whole financial crisis. So the whole financial world was just teetering on the edge. And we had this perfect offer and I was convinced it was going to fall through. But luckily it, it didn't. So we made 50% um, over just two and a half years of that live and flip. And then we didn't buy again until we moved to Vermont in 2011. By then, I had thought the real estate crash had happened, and surely it's just up from here. But we only stayed in there until like 2014, and we ended up selling that for, you know, like a small five-figure loss just because I guess that particular market hadn't finished purging all the high-priced houses or the bad loans or whatever it was. So we ended up selling for a little bit of a loss, which, yeah, again, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but it just shows how localized real estate is and something, even if the rest of the U.S. was recovering, maybe Vermont wasn't at that time. And we've just been renting ever since then. And we actually tried to buy a house recently, and that didn't really go to plan uh, because uh, the market's crazy here in Scotland. I'm not sure it's as crazy as it is in the States, but it's still pretty crazy. So we just realized we're quite happy renting and we can just wait for this craziness to pass. And then maybe in a, in a couple of years, we'll think about buying again. All right, guys. So you heard it here first. Brandon is a retired renter. Um, <laughs> the first real thing I'm, I'm interested to hear your perspective on here is I think investor sentiment in general. So I'm not sure how much you think about this since you've been early retired for several years now, but how do you conceptualize the position we're in now with both the real estate market and the stock market? You said you recently, you guys tried to buy a house, it didn't really pan out. So how are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah, like investor sentiment just obviously changes so much. And you talk to one person and they're extremely bullish. You talk to somebody else, they're extremely bearish. And, and that's because it's just really, everyone has different goals and different time horizons. So yeah, we just tried to buy a house. I now consider a house to be like a discretionary splurge because at least in Scotland, it just doesn't make sense money-wise to buy when you could rent for such a lower price. And again, that's probably different in lots of different places. But in Scotland, that's definitely the case where renting from a money standpoint makes so much more sense. But 
I'm 40 now and we're settling down finally. Like we've got our traveling out of our system. So like I want to splurge on a nice place. So we we found a place and we we're going to do an all cash offer. And we offered 40,000 pounds over the asking price, which I thought was we're way overpaying for this. We're going to be at least 10 or 15 grand more than anyone else because this is over the valuation. And I was like, but it's OK. You know, we want this and it's a really nice place. We were number eight out of 10 offers within a week of it going on. And it ended up going for 120,000 pounds over the valuation. You hear that and you're like, we're not thinking rationally right now. Like to me, this is like, they're going to look back on this in 20 years, the way we look back on what happened in 08 and be like, oh, wow, it was so obvious that we were in this like precarious bubble type scenario. Agreed. But there's always a rational actor on every side of these things. So as soon as that happened, I said, this is crazy. The market's crazy. People have gone nuts. Yeah. But maybe it's someone with $10 million in the bank and they're retired. And this was their perfect house that they've been looking for, for, you know, 10 years. Yeah. And they're like, you know what, we're just going to go for it and buy it. So that's the thing with investor sentiment. It's really tough to say everybody's crazy at the moment because maybe everyone's just more short-term thinking now. And me as a long-term investor, like, I'm still buying stocks. I'm still buying bonds. I'm still buying international stocks. It didn't make sense for me to tie up so much money in a house at this point. Mm-hmm. I've lived through the financial crisis. I was investing back in 2008. And, you know, I, I see how these things change. And really, it's just, yeah, it's probably a case of just, yes, I think it's crazy now. And yes, I think it'll come back down to what it normally is somewhere in the range of like normalcy again, but then it could slingshot the other way and, you know, times are tough again. So I try to focus as much as possible on my time horizon, which is like 30 to 60 years and try to ignore the noise as much as possible. I think there's this sentiment right now that, oh, well, the houses are only going to keep getting more expensive or like, I don't necessarily think we're headed for a crash necessarily. But it's funny to me when we have this rhetoric back and forth of like homeowner jubilee because now their house is worth so much more. And there's a part of me that's like, I don't really see a world in which this is good for anybody. Because even if you have a home that's appreciated in value, your home didn't appreciate in value in a vacuum. Everything else appreciated too. So it's not like you now have all this more purchasing power to go level up. Because if you're going to go buy something else, you're buying something else that's similarly overpriced and you're doing it with an interest rate that's 6 or 7% now, not 2 or 3%. So I, I kind of want to talk about risk now and the types of risks that you see associated with the way that we're thinking about home values, maybe particularly in the U.S., but it sounds like you're experiencing this in Scotland as well. So maybe this is a conversation that's larger than the United States. Yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, you look at places like Canada and it's even more of an issue potentially. And I I thought Canada was crazy like five years ago, and I was convinced that that was going to sort itself out, but it's just gotten worse. And that's the thing about these types of bubbles, if you want to call it a bubble, but you can never really tell when it's going to end and how much crazier it can get. 2008 definitely put some reality in people's ideas that the home is all your money, your net worth, and that's the best investment you make. And you just have to keep moving up and buying bigger and more expensive houses and things like that. But yeah, the risk is there. And like, as you said, like interest rates are going up in America. That's not going to be maybe as big of a immediate issue just because you have 30 year mortgages there. Where in Scotland, you have like five year fixed and it goes variable and 10 year like you can't get a 30 year fixed mortgage here. 
I was just reading something the other day saying, like, we haven't seen things change in Canada yet, but we could be on the precipice of things changing and people really getting into hot water because of rates going up and because the rates on their mortgages are variable. Yeah. And the the interesting thing to think about is, like, someone else was saying that, you know, like, in America, it may make the problem worse because there's a housing shortage. It's a shortage of supply. So if interest rates rise, people aren't going to want to move and then refinance at a mortgage rate that's twice the percentage that it was in the current house. So maybe that's going to discourage people from selling, which then will mean the supply is even lower. So yeah, it's very difficult to predict these things because there's so many second and third order effects of everything. So really, it's more just a personal decision. Like you, you just have to think like, okay, I could lose a big chunk of money. Is it worth that at this stage? And if not, renting is a great option. Like I, I don't understand people that say that renting is just throwing money away. It makes no sense because you're paying money to get shelter, which is very important for life. Right. I had heard somebody say recently, if you think about a home like a luxurious splurge, a discretionary expense of like, I'm going to splurge on this because I want this and it's important to me and I would be okay if I lost money on this, if it turned out that something happened that I have no control over and I lose money, I'm still going to be fine and happy with the purchase, then it's like, okay, then you are mentally ready to do this. But if it's the opposite, where it's like, I'm going to save up everything I have and then deploy all of my capital to this purchase because I'm assuming that next year it's going to be worth more than it is right now, it's like you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket and you're really relying on forces that you have little to no control over. Unless you're renting it out, I don't see that as an investment. Um, mm-hmm. And my buddy, J.L. Collins, uh, has one of my favorite blog posts of all time, but he says, why your house is a terrible investment. And he goes through this thought exercise of trying to come up with the worst possible investment you can think of. So he go, he's like, well, it's going to be illiquid. It's going to be really hard to sell. Uh, there's going to be high transaction costs when you buy or sell it. There's going to be like huge, unique risks. So it's going to be dependent on the country, but not only the country, but the city or the state or, or the neighborhoods. The specific and, neighborhood. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's going to be expensive to own. It's going to be a, just a constant cash suck. And it's going to have low returns or barely beat inflation. And that's exactly what real estate is if it is just your primary residence. So yeah, if you're just hoping the prices are going to rise, then that's the same as buying a you know an ape NFT or whatever it is. Um, just hoping that somebody else is going to pay more for it. And that's the definition of speculation. It's not an actual investment. So Okay. So I guess to kind of close this out here, I want to explore this idea that things change. Now, I know that this is a slippery slope with investing, but when I was doing some initial digging for this episode, I saw this chart that pointed out real estate appreciation mostly just kept up with inflation in the 20th century, but it really started climbing in the 21st century, crashing back down in 08 and then going up again. So I think we do have a bit of a recency bias for our expectations of what home values are going to do in the future. This idea that I guess in the past, and you listen to your parents, your grandparents are like, oh my God, my home's the greatest investment I ever made. Or I'm, it's like, well, yes, but you bought it at a very different time in history. If you bought a house in the 70s when it was in this period of like the values are not rising year over year, really, when you control for inflation, and then you kind of got the upside of the equity boom of all the money printing that has happened in the 21st century. It's like, we're kind of in a different era now, if you will. So I think there's almost this change in the way that we collectively think about 
housing, in a sense, that, that kind of has to take place. So I'm curious what you make of that, what that brings up for you. Yeah, so immediately I think of, you know, for most people, you know, especially of the older generations, they didn't have fee-free ETFs to trade, or they didn't have index funds that were, you know, charging seven basis points to invest in. And they didn't have a lot of extra income to invest. So you, they bought a house and it was forced savings because you had to pay off the mortgage and some of that went to principal. So of course, that's the primary wealth builder for previous generations who didn't have these other ways to invest as easily. Now, as you know, I just talked about, there's all, all these other ways that you can invest. Yes, there are obviously still some people out there that are only building wealth this way through forced savings, through principal pay down, through their mortgage payment every month, which is which is great. That That's definitely given a lot of people more wealth than they would have saved otherwise. But there are other ways out there to get a better return, because as you said, historically, it's tracked inflation pretty well as far as the value of real estate. Whereas stock investing, you're looking at 7% inflation adjusted returns. And now it's super simple. It's the easiest thing you can do. You just click a button in Vanguard. So if you're thinking about it as investments, then there's way better, way easier investments to add to your portfolio than, you know, a big brick and mortar thing that's going to need the air conditioning replaced and all this other stuff. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said about, yeah, it's like a splurge. It's a discretionary splurge. And yes, it could be a good investment, but there's so many factors affecting it. Like you mentioned, the location, climate change, all these things that could come and ruin all your plans, even if you are buying a house in a great market, that it's better off just looking at it as an expense, which it is, and then thinking about your investments another way and, and trying to pick the best investments that over the long haul will likely return the most with the least amount of risk. Totally. Where I get nervous about it and where I think people get into hot water is assuming, well, it's okay if I spread myself really thin to afford it because it's an investment. It's, it's like, oh, hold on. We're, that's where you get into dangerous waters. Now, I do think that the benefit of being an owner is that your payment is fixed in the U.S. to your point 30-year mortgage. You're not dealing or contending with the inflation adjusting rent going up every year. So I think that's certainly a feather in the cap of like the buy argument, but it's so localized. It's so dependent on where you live and what the price to rent ratio is where you live. And right now, I'm really getting the sense just from anecdotally and from looking at the evidence, the data that like most places in the US right now, objectively speaking, are overpriced. If you look at what those homes cost a year ago, two years ago, it's like you are going into this decision knowing that you're going to overpay for something. And if that's okay with you, great. But like, that's where I get nervous about people my age that are like, they're draining their entire life savings to get in that house. And it's like, damn, we better pray that HVAC is new because you're, it's going to hurt if it's not. Exactly. But the other thing that I think a lot of people leave out is the opportunity cost. What could that money be doing otherwise, which is a huge calculation for us. So to give you an example, going back to the house that we almost bought, it was 421,000 pounds was our offer. So the opportunity cost of having that in a bunch of stone in Stirling, Scotland is 2,500 pounds a month. So based on the 7%, uh, you know, average inflation-adjusted returns of the markets. Me taking that 421000 and putting it into that stone is costing me 2,500 pounds a month. We just decided to rent a three-bed, two-bath place not too far from there 
for a thousand pounds a month. I need to move to Scotland. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a bit rural, so it's not as great of a location as the place that we were going to buy, but it, it's comparable. Like they're the comparable size. But yeah, twenty five hundred pounds a month. Just the opportunity cost of having that money not in the market. Mm -hmm. Then you factor on you know all the taxes, all the transaction costs to get that house, all of the maintenance costs, and. Obviously, you know, it just it just doesn't make sense from a numbers standpoint. And, and that that's where I think a lot of people don't consider the opportunity cost. And that's the biggest cost that you're probably going to face as a homeowner, because that money that's in the in those bricks and mortar aren't generating any sort of income for you that they could be if they were elsewhere. And that is definitely very costly, especially over 30 years. Thank you so much for being here, Brandon. I really appreciate it. And um Candidly, thank you so much for everything that you've done for the financial independence world because you're you are a legend. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, continuing it on and becoming a legend <laughs> yourself and uh, doing doing what I no longer do because I'm now too lazy to do it. So <laughs> too busy making music. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Katie. All right. So uh, back to the numbers. These are the numbers that make me think that what's happening right now is not sustainable. As of 2020, 45% of Americans did not have the funds available to handle living expenses long enough to go three months without income. And everyone has heard that oft-repeated statistic about how roughly half of Americans would not be able to handle a $400 emergency. Half the country. I find these statistics difficult to square with the expectation that the housing market will continue a relentless climb upward, especially if it's at all predicated upon the middle class continuing to own homes. Simply put, it doesn't seem like there would be enough rich people around to buy all the houses. And again, why doesn't this apply to equities? Why is it different for the stock market? Well, because rich people tend to keep buying more of those regardless. Sure, a very wealthy person may have a couple homes, but they're not going to buy hundreds of homes. But with equities, there's no upper limit because equities are viewed as a way to build and preserve wealth through real creation of value and capitalism at work, while houses, for the purposes of providing shelter, are considered just that, a sometimes luxurious way to meet a human need. This is a quote that I liked from a macroeconomist named Philip Pilkington from Britain. He says, property is an asset like no other. A family can live without stock ownership, but it cannot live without a roof over its head. In a society where the growing pool of old people buys up all the property, thereby bidding up its price, young people end up renting from the old people. And in some cases, adult children are stuck living with their parents. I'll put his full think piece in the show notes. And the article that I pulled this quote from, it does read a little bit like a post-apocalyptic vision of a world in which young people finally have had enough and we rebel against the boomers for insulting our brunching habits and being lazy millennials. But it surprised me, honestly, to read another writer, this one male and in the UK and a macroeconomist, thinking about this problem in kind of a similar way. And if wages have been so stagnant, I can hear you asking, well, then how the hell did all these people plunk down a ton of cash for their homes in 2021 if the middle class isn't making any money? Well, we know that 20% of the houses went to investors, so we can take those out of the picture. But in short, two reasons, the Fed and the bank of mom and dad. 
The episode from two weeks ago went more into detail about the Fed piece, but this Politico article, I'll put it in the show notes, really kept me up at night. Because if you're curious about where the hell all the extra money in the system came from over the last decade, look no further for an explanation. This is the quote. Between 2008 and 2014, the Federal Reserve printed more than $3.5 trillion in new bills. To put that in perspective, it is roughly triple the amount of money that the Fed created in its first 95 years of existence. So if you're curious to learn more about that, go listen to the episode from two weeks ago about overvalued stocks. But the reality is that this cash, it pools in assets, equities, homes. The more cash we flood the system with, the higher the prices of homes and assets and stocks go. That explains why the housing market's chart has this crazy sharp uptick in the last year. You've got low interest rates, money printing, investor optimism, perfect storm creating this real estate market ripe for claiming that the value of homes can only go up and go up fast. Despite the fact that the last 70 years would indicate that the rise in the prices of homes corresponds quite nicely with money printing. Until the 21st century, the prices of homes more or less merely kept up with inflation. Now, to be fair, the same could be said for the equity markets. The S&P 500's recent rapid rise also follows the money-printing magic wand. But I would argue that it's more likely that real profits from the private sector will grow into those returns because the equities represent corporations creating net new value and, for lack of a better term, capitalism working, whereas the housing prices reflect the amount of money in the system and the rock-bottom interest rates. Historic returns support this too. The S&P 500 has returned an average of 10% per year when annualized, 7% when adjusted for inflation over the last 100 years, while real estate up until very recently has returned roughly 3%, slightly above the 0% when adjusted for inflation. Now, you may be thinking, hey, Katie, I'm a homeowner. Like, why should I want the housing market to cool? Well, all this money printing is in very stark contrast to wage stagnation and the financial condition of your average American. Anyone who did not buy a house before 2020, well, we didn't get any of that upside. Now, a home's attainability is even less in reach than it used to be. And I can see why people that own homes now are like, yeah, but that's fine. I've got my house. I'm good. Well, the reality is that your house did not appreciate in a vacuum, right? It appreciated with everything else around it. So it's going to be one of those situations where when you need to get out of the house you're in to get a bigger one because you're having another child or you need to move across the country for some reason to be near family, you're going to be in the same boat as everybody else, but this time with a higher interest rate. So this is why I say, hey, this isn't good for anybody. Like, it's only a matter of time before everyone is going to get burned by what's happening right now. So the same goes for someone who bought Apple at $29 a share in 2017. They have captured the upside of the money printing. They were able to buy 100 shares for $2,900, which would cost another investor $17,000 today. For someone who didn't own stocks or a home before the money printing started, it is now exponentially harder to get equivalent skin in the game. Cash has already pooled in and inflated the asset prices. And that's all well and good for stocks. Like, you don't need 100 shares of Apple to stay warm in the winter, but you do need a home. And when we start treating a basic human need for survival like an asset class to be flipped and traded and collected, 
honestly, all but the very wealthiest are going to lose. And my entire thesis is, but not for long. Because remember, a market needs two things to function. You need sellers and you need buyers. You need supply and you need demand. And the real estate market is slowly approaching the point where it's going to have more interested sellers than buyers because only those who already own homes will be wealthy enough to cash in their inflated equity and purchase new ones. The sad thing to me and why I think this conversation is important to have is because it only serves to exacerbate the wealth gap. This whole millennial borrowers to get their first down payment from their parents, it's so common at this point that it's practically a trope. Here's another quote from our British friend, Phil. He says, In the United Kingdom, where I live, policymakers still talk about supply and demand, but the middle classes are savvier. They instead talk of the bank of mom and dad because property prices are so high relative to the incomes of even well-off younger people. The only way to get into the property market is to convince your parents to invest in a second home under your name, thereby avoiding the capital gains taxes that apply to a second home. This approach relies on family solidarity to overcome intergenerational wealth inequality, and it only works for wealthier middle-class families. It is a stopgap solution to a problem that is likely to get much worse, writes our friend. So what about the millennials whose parents are not wealthy enough to fork over a $75,000 down payment for their starter homes 10% down? Well, the millennials who are gifted the head start are granted the ability to join the class of those who bought in early enough to capture the QE fuel depreciation, all but guaranteeing the ability to roll that equity in the future into something else. And when you play this out for a few generations, the reality is kind of grim. The rich are going to get richer and everyone else, well, not so much. So much for the American dream, right? All right, y'all, I know that was a long, winding road, but I hope it has given you something to think about. That's all for this week, and I will see you next week, same time, same place, on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by the lovely Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Bean Dog is our chief of Wolf, who barks at the most inopportune times. And Sam Cat is our chief chaos agent, loudly knocking shit off the desk when he disagrees with me. Suburban middle class scam, if done incorrectly, George is barking. Love that for us. Okay, we'll just pause, wait, and we'll start over.